This is an episode of Doth Protest Too Much, where we will be uh, focusing on the theologian T.F. Torrance. And with me today, we have Stephen D. Morrison, who's an author of uh, uh, several articles and books and is a blog author as well. And he's uh, what what I've uh, really read from him is, is some of his plain English series. And the plain English series include um, it's a series of books written for kind of beginner readers of theology. Um, and as his website admittedly says, by a beginner for a beginner. Uh, uh, so Stephen, welcome to the show. Uh, elaborate on that by a beginner for a beginner. What do you mean by that? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, yeah, so by a beginner for a beginner, in just kind of in a classic sense, I, um, I don't have, have any degrees in theology. Uh, theology has mostly just been a passion for me. Um, so I mostly come from that perspective of I see, for example, the Plain English series as kind of being an extension of my own learning process and kind of um, studying for myself, but also just trying to learn um, an approach that can help other people. Um, so it's kind of my extension of seminary. I, I never went to proper seminary or um, any degrees in theology. So, so that's kind of where the phrase comes from. So trying to be as, as just clear as possible. And um, C.S. Lewis had this great quote from one of his books, I'll probably butcher it, but something along the lines of sometimes the professor, because they've been with the, with the material for so long, they struggle to relate it to an amateur as much as somebody also that is beginning. And so sometimes a student can help another student a little bit better than sometimes even the expert can. So it's kind of in that spirit that, um, yeah, I have no problem calling myself a beginner and amateur theologian. Well, it's a good, it's a good spirit to be in. I think, I, th I think we're both amateurs in a way. I mean, I have a seminary degree and I'm, um, I'm in uh, graduate school, but no, no PhDs on the program today. That's perfectly okay. Jesus also did not have a PhD. Uh, yeah. uh, we should remind our listeners. Um, so though I am curious uh, what kind of, um, if he had a, how formal of rabbinical training or, you know, scripture reading, you know, maybe we'll get a a new Testament scholar on in the future to discuss that. But, um, and I like how we're, this episode kind of pairs well with our last one for our listeners. We had um, a guy who's contributed to a book uh, called Richard Hooker um, in modern English. So it was kind of making a, an excessive, you know, trying to make some of these writings of theologians can, um, can be know, obtuse is the word, who knows, but kind of making it accessible for people. In this case, of course, uh, Stephen Morrison, our guest today, is breaking down um, some more modern theologians. Though they're modern, they, they, um, they're they very academic, and so we appreciate the work he's doing in that. Um, and like I said, the series includes major modern theologians, or major thinkers of what we would call modern theology. Uh, they include titles such as James Cone in plain English, Karl Barth in plain English, Friedrich Schleiermacher in plain, plain English, Jürgen Moltmann in plain English, and also T.F. Torrance in plain English, which will kind of serve as our pretext today, uh, as this episode is about uh, T.F. Torrance, Torrance. Sorry, What are some uh, upcoming titles you're working on for that series? Yeah, so the next one will be on Paul Tillich and then Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Mm. Kind of the next couple nice. that I have set up, and then I have a whole dream list of people to get through but um those are the next a dream list yes yeah. yes so i and i i, I did st i do remember on the upcoming tells you have a robert jensen one coming up possibly yeah i'd like to do jensen he seems really fascinating um for sure awesome yeah, yeah i'm not too familiar with jensen but i love i'm a huge carl broughton fan and i know they work together a lot and so uh, mm -hmm. I, i'm interested in reading more of your plain english series definitely um so oh before we get into i mean a little bit into your, your you you have a little bit about your biography journey of of what ignited your passion in theology on your website but first uh we had a pre-show conversation for our listeners we were going to discuss some favorite movies and shows 
Um, we do this time to time. It gets a personal feel of our guests and your host, because your host is going to share his too. Um, so Steven, starting with, well, so we're both going to talk about our three favorite movies and a current show we're watching. We may not even have to like it, but that, or maybe we, or we, or that we do like, that's why we're watching it. So uh, starting with you, Steven, what's your, uh, what's your top three favorite movies? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I like uh, I like a lot of different directors. I feel like I, I tend to just kind of latch on to a director and kind of go through their catalog and some of that. So I it was hard to pick some. I, I like Stanley Kubrick quite a lot. Um, so I'd probably have to say Shining from him is the one I've watched the most of um, The Shining. But so, so maybe that one. Um, I also like um, David Lynch, who's kind of an oddball. He's I just love his creativity. So he's a, I'm a big fan of him. Um, not sure which movie I'd call my favorite from him because his are quite quite unique and odd. Maybe the Twin Peaks um, movie that he did. Um, actually, his he he thinks of the return of Twin Peaks, which is a TV show. He thinks of it as a movie. So if you count that as a movie, I'd say that one. Um, and then lately, for probably more of a modern guy, I really like the movie In Bruges. Martin um, McDowell, I think okay. is how you say his name. So that's a That'd be a three, I guess. I've not seen number three. So, okay. Um, yeah. Brother, have we could that? not. Sorry. <laughs> have, you, have you seen that Three Billboards movie? He's the same guy that did that one. I've not. I've not. It's, it's, he's great. He's hilarious. It's dark humor. So if you like dark humor, if you don't, then. Here and there, I like some dark comedies. Um, it, yeah. it, I was just a joke. I was like, you and I could not be farther apart. <laughs> so, really? I went, so Kubrick, I just never got Kubrick and I really have never gotten Lynch, but I had a friend who was really into David Lynch. And okay. he, we watched Eraserhead and I was like, yeah. what in the world is this? <laughs> I was just like, what is this? So, but you oh, know, yeah. I do like um, people, critics, movie critics would laugh at me from here back to Hollywood or Chicago Tribune or whatever, but I am a huge fan of 2000. This is not one of my f- three favorites, but 2010, the year we made contact, which is the sequel to 2001 space odyssey. Oh, Roy Scheider. Heard of it. So good. So good. Now yeah. it's a much different film and they're not really going towards that Kubrick feel at all. Um, but it, it it's really good. And it kind of gets into Russian US relations during the time of the Cold War in kind of a kind of a bold way in a way. I guess it was, but it, it taught, but it also had a message of bringing humanity together because when you're stuck in a space, no spoilers, but when you're stuck in a space station together, you just have to come together. So it was good. Uh all right, good. And what's the current show you're into? Um, I t- I tend to have a bad habit with shows where I just rewatch ones I, I like oh, yeah. and know that are solid. Um so Seinfeld classic uh yes. easy I, I think i've watched through the whole thing at least five times or something now it's <laughs> such a it's good pretty bad but I, I love that show so it's easy to just watch back old ones and they're hilarious so yeah they so, are you know and that's one of the shows i've appreciated more as i've like become yeah. more i used to watch as a kid but as i'm a, as an adult i just appreciate you know yeah appreciate you it get so to watch much them more. twice yeah yeah and like there's no plot really in it <laughs> and that's but they somehow make they tie everything together yeah, show, with show no about plot. nothing. It's a show about nothing, and it's 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 a classic. Yeah, and I need to get back to rewatching Seinfeld's So, all right, cool. Um, my three favorite all times are uh, On the Waterfront, directed by Eli Kazan, starring Brando. Um, uh, powerful movie, just just yeah. Still to this day, I saw it when I was like twelve or thirteen, and so a lot of the things in it probably went above my head. But it is, I've rewatched it here and there over time. And consistently, it's just been my number one favorite. Um, then number two would be The Godfather, which also stars Marlon Brando. I'm not a big Marlon Brando fan um, at all. Or, or, you know, he's okay, but he just happens to be the star of my two favorite movies. And then The Thief of Baghdad, which is a silent, there's several versions, but there's the silent version with Douglas Fairbanks Sr., the swashbuckling actor, Again, saw that. I think I was a teenager. I was really into old movies. You know, I have my, you can't, there's a podcast you can't see, but I also like WC Fuels a lot. I have a couple of pictures of him and uh, a, a, thing, a figurine of him. But uh, so, yeah, Steven's looking at it. He's probably like, what is that? But, but um, yeah, so those are my three. And then a, a current show, I, I like there's um, 
uh, show called City on a Hill. It's on HBO. Uh, who's uh, Kevin Bacon's in it? And if he, it's it's a it's like about Boston, the Boston crime scene in the early nineties. And uh, not for the faint of heart, it gets intense. So yeah. my wife, my wife and I, Rachel, we, we've been really into it lately. So nice. yeah, awesome. Um, yeah, I just like to, you know, like to have questions like that. And yeah. it makes people like people who are like, you know, theology nerds and who are always into the books, we can also relate to normal people. Yeah. Godfather uh, normal was, people. <laughs> was a contender for me as well. So I what's a contender? Godfather was a contender. I was yes. going to say that. That's I love the first one. Uh, no, it's, all of them are good but. there are well i don't like i don't like three to be honest um, oh really i used to give more grace to three now i don't i rewatched yeah. it recently and i just think this movie's not that good um but i always thought one one was always my favorite and two like two's great but i didn't like it more i still don't like it more but i rewatched two recently and i listened to a really good there's a podcast called the cinephiles where they these guys just sit around and dissect these movies and they did four episodes on the godfather part two oh, wow. and they were pointing out all these things i didn't catch and it made me appreciate two more so i still like one more but two's great um mm-hmm. so uh so on your website you have a biography of sorts Stephen, um that you uh raised in the faith and you found your way you the way you put it it, it was like you, you're you traveled to go study at some charismatic school. Do you want to uh, elaborate on that for us? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, Hog- and uh, high school people would joke that it sounded like Hogwarts for Christian. Mm. Um, it was called Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry in Redding, California. Um, I grew up charismatic, so I, it was familiar for me. It's kind of like the center of charismatic world, I feel like still even today. Is a lot of the stuff at Bethel, uh, Bill Johnson, Chris Valentin, people like that are, are kind of the leaders, older leaders there. They have a bunch of younger, newer guys there too, but um, everybody knows Bethel music now. When I went there, it was a little bit st- still underground. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus Culture and all them um, were there. So yeah, I, I went there. It's an unaccredited just kind of ministry school. So mostly a focus on, um, really a focus on kind of developing yourself and, and growing as a person in Christ and learning your identity and uh, your sonship in God. So that, that was such a important developmental time for me. It was also a time of kind of, you know, learning more about myself, you know, 18, 19, learning about um, my love for theology and kind of in charismatic circles, it's theology. I feel like it's looked down upon a little bit. Um, It's kind of like, it can semi be the butt of the joke. I, I feel like so going there and learning and meeting other people who actually appreciated theology was kind of like eye-opening like oh this is actually something that people do value Mm -hmm. um and so but yeah it was a great experience met my wife there we got married halfway through second year and um yeah it was it was a great time so yeah that's only schooling proper schooling i've I've done so that's yeah so it seems like that was a good experience for you because it um maybe brought brought you into uh, an environment where you could engage in critical thought maybe and yeah yeah it definitely did one of the early lessons that i really appreciated from uh the school was they they really stressed that um you know you have to be able to think for yourself but then really the biggest stress was that um disagreement doesn't mean disconnection that you know you can be in conversation and you can um it, it's not such this like stressful battle of like me against this person so that kind of gives permission in that sense to explore ideas with a mm-hmm. little bit less um hostility to ones that you might disagree with um but yeah it definitely opened that up i i wouldn't say necessarily that theology was like that was more of a personal journey it wasn't necessarily the subject of of the sure. school but i just kind of found myself in um kind of connecting with people that that all really valued theology and we'd have just good chats about it and it was encouraged so it was definitely a good thing but it, it wasn't properly a theology school we had like one bible class every week and that was kind of it the rest was just just an emphasis on you know doing miracles and doing you know kingdom stuff um worship and, and all that so it was a big very very charismatic um church but yeah it was definitely developmental yeah. for me and kind of kind of a launching pad of getting me uh, giving me permission to pursue that, uh, that I think that was always in there in me. So, so has that part of faith, I guess, of, of that charismatic angle, as well as, uh, 
that world of miracles, is that still something that sticks with you? Is that something you're that? Yeah, it does. Um, it does it less now, I feel like, um, as far as it's not as much of an, of an emphasis. I mean, Jürgen Maltman talks about it some in his books um, about being open to that. I, I think in terms of, you know, theologically, I definitely identify more as being reformed now. Um, mm-hmm. I think being exposed to kind of the doctrines of grace and, and all that stuff in Bart and all of them definitely has, has shifted my theology more towards the reformed angle. So not, you know, tr- traditionally charismatic churches are t- typically um, Arminian in, in, in their thinking and a little bit more like Wesley and sort of that thought. Um, and, but yeah, today I, I think I'd, that's the biggest shift has been like where I think we're in a Baptist church now. It's kind of like one of those gray area churches that's Baptist slash non-denominational mm-hmm. um, but yeah, so it's still part of it. It's it's not. I wouldn't say it's um, sure. the biggest part, but it's it's there. It's hard to. I mean, I know there's some reform thought that's cessationist, and I I don't think I would ever go that far. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as it being the center of everything, I, I don't think it is for me uh, anymore. Okay. But but still very personal. I mean, I, devotionally and all that. It's still you know a big part of it. Well, you you say I remember from your that it was at Bethel where you became or started to become at least a grace enthusiast. So I, mm-hmm. I like how you put that. Um, and uh, I actually pulled a quote. So I read your quote, if that's right. You said the gospel during this time truly became a beautiful announcement, truly good news. It was no longer just a message taught once every Easter. The one that really nef- left the one that never really left the pages of the Bible. You said, now for me, the gospel became the astonishing news in the entire cosmos, truly good news. So, mm-hmm. so well put. Do you read Mockingbird by chance? Mockingbird. Um, oh, yeah, the blog, right? Um, yes. I've heard of them. I don't, I don't read many blogs, but I have heard They're, of them. Well, it's blogs, article. It's, um, uh, it's a very grace-central. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's, it's put together by several Episcopalians, preacher and lay are very involved with it um and and uh but they have people from other denominations too and and they really uh they're they're big fans of of um justification kind of the the lutheran reformed Mm -hmm. uh view of that and also on grace and they try to they try to tie it to contemporary culture and Mm -hmm. why grace is really the central message of the gospel and if we're missing that then we're really missing the gospel i could see you maybe uh i need to put you in touch with some of them um yeah i feel like are they fans of robert capone i, I he, he was an author for me that was really developmental early on and i feel like i read something from them that was about him or something like that. i think they've referenced capone on that um mm-hmm. here and there I, I i i think they really have um so episcopalian i I might be wrong on that, but I think he was. Yeah, he's not someone I'm I'm super familiar with, but he's someone that I hear a lot of like bloggers or writers and podcast people like have referred to him enough to the point where I probably should be reading more of him. So um, yeah, he's an interesting one. He's really good. Yeah. So uh, and you also say in your biography, this will be kind of a segue into our TF Torrance conversation. So you say when I read Bart Moltmann Torrance, Torrance, some of these. Uh, modern theologians. You said, I found a systematic, beautiful, logical theology that supports the joyous gospel I had um, discovered. Through these great theologians and others, I've continued my journey to make sense of the life of Jesus Christ and to proclaim his good news as truly good news. So now focusing on one of those, T.F. Torrance, um, who we're going to be spending today's episode on, uh, kind of a, uh, we're going to maybe get into kind of a brief overview of who he was biographical and part, but not so much. Um, I think my first, my first question really to start us off is why is Torrance, you could put it in a couple set. I mean, if there's, I know there's, he's significant for a lot of reasons, but what do you think would be the most as far as why he is significant for theology today or theology in this time really? Yeah. Um, so he was a Scottish theologian studied with Bart. Um, Bart actually wanted him to, uh, take over his um professorship for a period of time um torrance never ended up doing it um but yeah torrance i think for me i I think it depends on the person i think for me torrance 
just encaptures that original evangelical theology spirit and in, in the sense of not where it's kind of in, in america kind of more of a voting block or whatever uh but evangelical of like proclaiming the good news and so i think throughout his work that's just such a central um element that that's that he does such a good job of that and then the pastoral element as well where he just has such a um i think a profound pastoral implication um in terms of just proclaiming grace and 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 really um i think in the sense of where it, it resonated really well for me early on he was one of the first theologians that i read and studied really seriously it, it resonated with me really well in the sense of um changing the narrative about uh, faith being kind of something you do and faith being something that's like it's all thrown on your shoulders uh, where where he talks about the faithfulness of Christ in your place and um, so just really proclaiming a, a message that's liberating and freeing and very beautiful um, just yeah very grace-centric um, and he does it in a way that's he he's very close to Bart but he's also um, I think he um, is a bit more reformed than Bart is in the sense of he's closer to Calvin um, but he's also closer to the church father. So he, I think he's extremely relevant for uh, theology in, the, in kind of in that post-Bardian world of someone that really took Bart's ideas and put it into such a practical effect for the church. And I think that's some, one of his biggest um, benefits is, is for the church. Um, some of the great things that, that Bart talks about, uh, he puts it into such a pastoral and theological and worshipful way that I think is really beautiful. Mm-hmm. I could definitely tell the Bart. I mean, I'm a big Bart fan. Um, that wasn't, I mean, I never wasn't, I wasn't too familiar with Bart until I took a seminar on him. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's, he became like one of my top favorite. I was just, um, I don't agree. I don't agree with him with everything. I mean, I, I'm more, I'm more, I'm more Lutheran than I am Calvinist reformed, <laughs> but um, I, I really loved um the challenges and kind of the paradigm that Bart brought. Um, and I see Torrance very much, I mean, you can it just, even without knowing the history that Torrance was a student and one of Bart's, I guess, favorite students, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think Bart said something like, uh, this guy gets me more than any of my other students. It's, it's something to that nature. Um, but I could definitely see the influence. Um, what were some of his other, were there other some influence, whether currents of thought or other figures like Bart that were big uh, that were influential for him yeah um one of his other contemporary teachers was H.R. McIntosh uh Hugh Ross McIntosh um which was another Scottish theologian uh that Torrance really liked um but really so Torrance would call himself Calvin I think it was a big one too um so Bart even said to Torrance that Torrance is closer to Calvin than Bart even is um but really I'd say the biggest one is Athanasius um so one of the strengths Torrance has, I feel like, is as a patristic scholar, he mm-hmm. he really went back and he understood the patristics really well. His great book, The Trinitarian Faith, is just drenched with great uh, insights into the Church Fathers and uh, in relation to the Trinity. Um, but he he he's even admitted that that he wouldn't call himself a Bardian in the sense of of mostly being dominated by Bart. But if he were to call himself anything, he'd call himself an Athanasian. Okay, so he relies, I think, more on Athanasius uh, than even on Bart, and really on the incarnation. If you, I mean, that's such a great early text, but you can see the similarities between them really strongly with that. Uh, um, the um, stuff on the Arians and stuff is is also a big influence on him. So, um, yeah, Athanasius is a big one. So, kind of being drenched in that early church fathers uh, environment, um, kind of in a in a Western sense, not Augustine. I feel like that's kind of the the go-to for the West, but like yeah. Torrance goes back to more of the Eastern fathers. Um, sure. And in that sense. And so, yeah. So Athanasius and, and Hugo Ross, there's, there's others. I think the scientific element to it is really interesting too, where he could probably claim scientists as influential to him. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael Polanyi, um, Einstein, people like that, having an actual influence on his thought, which is really fascinating. Um, but yeah, I'd say, I think I'd say Athanasius is probably the biggest one that, you could trace to to Torrance really well. Wow. So and so it kind of seems to me like he um in a way in the way that Bart um revisited the reformers, the Protestant reformers, and for his kind of 
when he became more of a systematic and dogmatic type of theologian, you could say that um, Torrance kind of went back to the early church period, the people then, uh, and, and more of them and not just Augustine, I guess. So, yeah. And so Bart's definitely more of an Augustinian than Torrance. Torrance, I can definitely see the Eastern. Uh, yeah. Well, Torrance is quite critical of Augustine and, and um, he has this thing called the Latin heresy, which he puts on Augustine and some of the other Latin fathers. Yes. We're actually going to get into that Latin heresy bit in, from, yeah. the, from a quote from Alexander's book that I pulled. Um, okay. And I know yeah. we probably got some people like some of our usual listeners that might be there might be steaming through their ears. Don't worry. I'm a huge, I'm a Western Christian through and through. I love, I love Augustine. He is the greatest theologian ever. Stephen may not agree with me, but, <laughs> but it's, don't worry. I mean, uh, we, but we uh, invite lots of voices on the show. So, um, so uh, in a little bit about his life and biography, uh, there, I know he had some, he had some wartime experience, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was a chaplain. Um, okay pretty defining experience for him i feel like i i put it in my book but one of the greatest quotes i think from him is or not quotes but uh biography um moments from him was when he was in the in the uh war and um a a guy was was quite clearly gonna die and he was you know ministering to him um and the question that he asked the burning question in his mind was is god really like jesus and that's and, and then that was so profound and then Torrance says later he was back home in, in scotland as a pastor and an old lady came up to him towards the end of a service an older older woman and and asked him the exact same question word for word is god really like jesus and that was just for him it, he it, he began to realize that that this is the burning question that theology should be answering mm-hmm. and he does such a beautiful job of doing that um, and i mean that's a big thing apart too know God behind the back of Jesus Christ and that God truly is revealed in Christ and, and stuff. And yeah, so the, the wartime and the pastoral um, experiences that Torrance had really shape his work. Um, and I think really important ways. And that's why I think pastoral element is just so uh, profound and, and pronounced in his work. It, it definitely brought the Christ centeredness piece to his, mm-hmm. we see later in his theology. Um, right. And uh, yeah, definitely. so I, uh, Torrance has interests in the relationship of uh, theology and science. Um, so you want to speak to that a little bit? I mean, I know there's a difference. He was still contend that there's a difference between what a natural scientist does, natural mm-hmm. scientist for a list, you know, an astronomer, a physicist, a, you know, whatever. I mean, there's all kinds of natural scientists. Mm-hmm. Um, so you contend that there's a difference between what natural scientist does what a theologian does um but where why is why should there be the relationship of theology and science according to torrance mm-hmm. yeah um well there's a lot of different elements to it i think um for starts torrance understands theology as a science as a as a form of science as a critical investigation of of the nature of god um and as such it, it doesn't have i think conflict with science in the sense of uh it's pursuing a different end so it, like the, the classic examples evolution and how it, especially in american christian it's like oh it can't coexist and whatever else whereas i i feel like torrance um he may have had a different opinion but as far as explicitly he doesn't necessarily talk about that issue but um but doesn't see as much there being this big cosmic battle between science and faith that it doesn't have mm-hmm. to be a struggle and that faith can actually learn from science and science in, in its own way can actually learn from faith. Um, and, uh, and theology is a theological science. Um, the other crossover is how um, he has this great phrase where science can, um, what's the exact phrase? Science uh, can give voice to the praises of creation by investigating the natural world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so natural science can have that benefit to faith where it gives the uh, gives a voice to voiceless creation as it praises god um and so he's a little bit more concerned i feel like on the epistemological level of the parallel between science as a natural science and science as theological science mm-hmm. um it's kind of the things that can be learned between the two um he's particularly interested in like i said michael Polanyi and, and einstein and kind of how they 
um, reassess the nature of um, what it means to know no reality. Right. Um, and so he he was a critical realist in that sense and in the way to approach truth. And and I think he learned that um, from Bart and others, of course. But I think he he he, he as a theologian, I, I think it's really fascinating that um, you know the dialogue between faith and science is. I feel like kind of reached a popular level at this stage, but he, he's one of the few theologians I've known that actually takes science, not just as like a, as something just to use for his own ends, but it's actually something he took mm-hmm. just about as seriously as, so he would read extremely difficult texts and, you know, he'd actually keep up with the latest trends and, and not trends, but, you know, the scholarship. And so he, he applied himself as a scholar, you know, not to science as some sort of way just to like, straw man it or you know bat it down or whatever else is sometimes happens mm-hmm. um but in a sense where he truly was studying it in in a true and, and genuine way and so i think that was really interesting one of the few theologians i think that would read Karl Barth and einstein with just as much seriousness right um very fascinating but- not and not just for points of connection even though he would draw them but just mm-hmm. to read them on their own mm-hmm. yeah. oh yeah um, yeah, seeing the value in them, just you know, like I said, for for understanding creation. Yeah, sure. Um, you mentioned in your book that there had been that there were kind of two paradigms of science, and you know, I, and I like this. I never really thought about it this way, but it's so true that there's kind of been two paragra- paradigms of science in the modern era. Um, really, can be summed up by Newton and the Newtonian program, if you will, and Einstein and kind of his you know, breakthroughs, his contribution. And, mm-hmm. and this, and, and it relates to subjectivity and objectivity. Um, I guess, I guess it's kind of a loaded question, but basically how does, how does it, the Newton system and the Einstein system uh, differ? I mean, these, you know, these are kind of the two, I guess, uh, pinnacle or, you know, uh, mm-hmm. big paradigms of science. And so how, what's, What's the contrast between those two? Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm not an expert in the history of science, so this is mostly... Me neither, but I mean, I know yeah. kind of generally, though, I mean, there is a... Yeah. Um, he uses those two schools of thought mostly to show a... Um, so, Newton kind of had this dualistic framework is kind of how Torrance would put it. It's kind of a science of dualism, of God is... The, or the universe is a cosmic clock, that God is just the one that just wound it up and then just let it go. Um, and so kind of that like cosmic clockmaker sense of God is it was kind of the Newtonian um, idea. And so the way of thinking for that is then thinking in terms of external relations instead of internal and intrinsic and holistic relations. And that was the benefit of, of Einstein, of understanding relativity and understanding uh, a bit more um, holistically how the universe works, not just as this um mechanistic thing yeah mechanistic dualistic sense but more of a holistic and integrated uh way of thinking um where i think one of the great myths about science that probably still persists today on a on a lay level at least is that science is somehow just this like objective science in an objective right. sense where right. you're distant from it and you're by by trying to learn something about it you don't actually have a personal stake or you're not actually taking part in what you're learning you kind of separate yourself and and all this and and i think the less dualistic way of thinking understands things as personal knowledge and and as um integrated and a little bit more you know you can't escape yourself you can't jump over your own shadow um and bart's great phrase and so you you have to um recognize that you're always going to bring yourself to what you're trying to learn and discover um and so i i in very rough rough outlines i think that's yeah well distinguishing I like how you put like like in the the former mod the new the Newton way of science is very objectified and it kind of goes to the subject object polarity and you see that you see that in theology and philosophy and in kind of the pre Einstein and Einstein kind of brings it like you said holistically um you know I I think that Einstein has not always held up in that I mean he should be held up in that sense but I think we've really failed a lot of us have, to really get on board with Einstein I mean, I, I think. Mm-hmm a lot of us are still in Newton mode. Like um, I think of like very crass forms of naturalism that kind of pervade our popular sense of what science is, or, or at least a culture where I think there's an overall depletion of a sense of transcendence or any kind of Mm 
existential meaning to things, you know? Yeah. And so I, I think it, people like Einstein and probably some others, again, I'm not big on history. So I don't know all the people, but I feel like the 20th century offered better ways. Mm-hmm. And ironically, we in the 21st century are still caught up on new Newtonian way, you know? Um, yeah. I don't know. And I think mystery is such a big part of it too. I feel like Einstein recaptured mystery to the universe and, and you know, cause Newton just, everything was understood by natural laws and it was cause and effect. And it was so, you know, dualistic and black and white whereas with Einstein it's like there's so much mystery and beauty and things aren't as I guess rigid as as Einstein kind of understood it sure um yeah and I think you know prior to Torrance uh and Einstein and Bart I mean even I mean like I said for this whole the 20th century you see a lot of pushback not just scientifically but also like philosophically Heidegger um yeah, uh, which is very dense. And we're not <laughs> I'm not gonna try to break down Heidegger on this show, but he even tries to not bridge, but just transcend, get get away from the subject object mm-hmm. thing, right? Um, that you know, because most people, I mean, I think most common people would agree. I mean, they they kind of when they wake up and they go and live their normal lives, and they interact with the world, and there's not that subject object polarity. I mean, the average person doesn't really have that. Um mm-hmm. So I do think Torrance is very much a man of his time um, because in the 20th century, you do see kind of that broader, whether it's through science, whether it's through theology, whether it's through philosophy, um, that, that broader uh, way of getting away from objectifying, mm-hmm. you know, things. And so, um, so 20th century is more of an age of meaning, perhaps, than the previous modern centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, yeah. So Torrance appreciates Einstein over Newton. How does that, how does Torrance, uh, how does Einstein then complement, and maybe in a couple of ways, how does Einstein complement Torrance's theological outlook? How's he mm-hmm. Yeah, so for Torrance, then there's like a, the- there's a theological parallel between um, Einstein and Bart, um, where Bart did in theological terms, um, something similar to Einstein, obviously they can't can't find too many parallels um, there but in the sense of moving away from non-dualistic thought um, and into a more integrated and holistic um, thought and 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 more in terms of internal relations and less in terms of external forms or um, you know kind of this like doctrinal sense where doctrines are laid side by side and they don't really touch or bleed over um, and so Bart uh, Torrance Bart is being one of the um, wants to kind of rediscover more of that holistic approach, which Torrance then goes back and sees in the uh, church fathers as well. But um, yeah, so that's kind of the parallel. I think um, it's maybe a little bit crass to look and say that Newton would be like, I don't know, a Calvin or somebody that's a little bit more um, rigid. I think one of the clearest analogies would be like with the doctrine of election where Bart has such a more nuanced and holistic understanding of election uh whereas calvin's quite rigid with the you know elect and the reprobate and having this kind of dualism i mean easily mm-hmm. easily to call that dualism but um yeah so I, there's parallels there i torrance brings them out himself far better than i think i could sure. um, yeah. but it, it's very fascinating to think of it in that sense where and that's that kind of goes to show i think the dialogue between faith and science that happens whether or not we're conscious of it. And I think right. even what we're talking about, how it, he was a spirit of his time, I, I think that's kind of what he um, got a hold of, was realizing that this dialogue's kind of already happening. Um, mm-hmm. Our understanding of the universe and our understanding of faith, they kind of, um, they, they talk to each other, even if we don't consciously accept it. And so let's make it conscious. Let's, let's put it out in the open and let's critically examine how this works a little bit better. Um, and so I, I think that realization that it, you know, there already is a, it, we're, we're like the deists were very much influenced by Newton's science, sure. and that, that deistic outlook of the world of God, just being this, you know, unmoved mover, this, this sense of, um, not, it's not fair to call that deistic, but in the sense of like this, this dualism that kind of spawned religiously from, from Newton, um, so there's so there's always going to be that dialogue, I think, and so I think Torrance's understanding of that's really insightful and and helpful um, in that regard. Yeah, but you're right. Well, and I think uh, that uh, making the universe conscious it kind of speaks. to, There's a quote you pulled from uh, T.F. Torrance 
from his book, The Ground and Grammar of Theology. And, and uh, where Torrance says, without man, nature is dumb, mm-hmm. but it is man's part to give it words, to be its mouth through which the whole universe gives glory, gives voice to the glory and majesty of the living God. Yeah. Right. I think it summarizes, um, you know, the, the universe is not just a cold mechanistic thing, but um, mm-hmm. has purpose and we give it purpose, you know, so, um, so I know a little, little while ago, uh, before we really got into science, you, we talked, you, you mentioned like, um, the Christ centeredness piece of his theology. And then those two encounters Torrance had pastorally once as a chaplain where, uh, he, uh, encountered people either in death or in crisis and they, uh, they had that burning question. What was the burning question again? Is God really like Jesus? Is God really like Jesus? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of getting into Christology uh, now, or how Torrance understood Jesus, the nature of Christ, uh, what Jesus d- did, what he said, and ultimately who Jesus is as a person in the Trinity, in the Godhead, mm-hmm. how he's fully, genuinely human and fully, truly God. Um, I... I I was going to ask you some things about this. Uh, you you talk about um, in 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 terms of how Jesus is God and human. That's that's an ancient doctrine. It's a classic doctrine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but Torrance really spoke to this and gave it a really interesting articulation. Um, how where there's kind of a simul- Jesus. Um, uh, there's kind of a twofold agency in Jesus, where Jesus Christ is God reaching humanity. Mm-hmm. Um, as God, he reaches humanity and Jesus Christ as human hears and responds to God's word. And he's doing these two different things. So, uh, kind of elaborate on that. What, mm-hmm. what's that really about? Yeah, no, for, for Torrance, both the God word and the human word, motions mm-hmm. of grace, grace and of gratitude, that great, um, dichotomy and Bart is, is taken up in Christ where it's, it's not thrown on us to complete some sort of covenant but but christ truly is the um the fulfillment of of that relationship and so in that sense then torrance can can say things like jesus christ is our relationship to the father is our relationship to Mm -hmm. god um and then in the sense of um, our prayers and our worship and our faith are taken up in christ and perfected and lifted up into the father and he's taking that advocate motif in scripture um, but in such a such a more I, I think nuanced way and a more um, um, pastoral way in, in a really profound sense, and so yeah, where where God really truly reached the depths of um, human uh, suffering and human um, alienation from God, which is epitomized in in the "My God, My God, Why Have You Forsaken Me?" on the cross, where for Torrance that is Christ truly reaching us in the pit of our fallen Adamitic mind. Um, in our in our estrangement and our, our sense of God forsakenness, but um, and so that was that's the Godward movement that reaches us. But then in the very same motion, it is uh, the conversion of our fallen mind to um, where Christ repents on our behalf, mm-hmm. and Christ has faith on our behalf, and and that our faith is only an echo of of that original faith, and, it, and it's grounded and rooted in Christ, and it's not in ourselves. And so this kind of narrative of you have faith in Christ, you have faith in God, or, you know, it's all thrown back on the individual is kind of, is kind of corrected. I mean, there's still a personal element of response, but it's no longer rooted in your abilities or in your um, strength. Right. Now it's all grounded in Christ. And so um, I think it's, it's one of the most practical and pastoral aspects of Torrance's work that, that personally I felt found really helpful. Um, I mentioned that briefly about my own biography, how that was such a um, helpful um, insight from from Torrance and and really you can find it in Bart, but Torrance just takes it um, to further and, and into a more pastoral um, level and and so yeah, I, it's it's a really beautiful aspect for Torrance, and I think there's a lot to unpack with that, and I think um, pastorally it can be extremely helpful for um, for people that struggle with faith or think that faith is kind of their burden, and I think that. Torrance's maybe response to that would be that it's it's a burden that's been taken up already by Christ, and mm-hmm. 
it's rooted in Christ, your faith. And, and so he textually, textually, I think like biblical um, scholars have kind of come around to this opinion. I think I know some of the newer translations do this, but there's that phrase in Paul of, of, of you can either translate it as faith of Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. Um, or no, sorry, um, I'm confusing it. Faith in Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so Torrance prefers the latter where we're not saved by our own faith, but we're saved by right. Christ's faith. But like at Ephesians says, the faith, it's not of, not of your own doing, it's a gift from God, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And so it pulls those motifs and, and systematizes them in such a beautiful way um, and makes it a little bit more central than I think sometimes it has been. So, right. yeah, um, it's it's really a beautiful aspect of his work that I appreciate. Yeah, I liked the the Christ-centeredness of it. Um, and so it's funny, I, I remember uh, a few years ago, I had an experience, I mean, I was in some type of setting where, they had like a, a different creed. They use a different, an alternate creed. I'm not a big fan of uh, revisionary creeds and alternate creeds usually. Um, and uh, But this creed that they said in the incarnation piece in the creed that, that God uh, became truly human in Jesus. And I remember there was someone that objected <laughs> to that. Like, well, Jesus can't be like truly human that he's not true. And I don't know what the objection was. I, I, you know, I don't know if it was like a low view of humanity or something. And and I was like, you know, and I thought, you know, I don't really, I mean, I have a high Christology, um, but I don't object to seeing God as becoming truly human because that's, that's what he, that's what the incarnation is um, yeah. without compromising him being fully God. And, and I think, you know, we, we think of humans, um, we often think of humans as, you know, by default as, as less than God or not as good as God. And, you know, and in a sense, that's absolutely true because we're imperfect and we're sinful. And of course, we're, we're lacking in those divine attributes of God. But, you know, for instance, but humans as God originally intended them is what is truly human is, right? And, and God shows that in Jesus, you know, and in the, and, uh, you know, it's, it's like the restoration of the garden uh, in Jesus. Uh, and uh, as a fully good, true and reflection of their loving creator. Um, and so, you know, I don't know. I, I like how you say, um, uh, grace does not negate our natural humanity, mm-hmm. but it perfects and completes it in the vicarious mind um, mm-hmm. of Christ. Explain what that, what that really means, if, if you will. Yeah. Um, so Torrance talks about this somewhere kind of the misconception about grace is that all of grace has to mean none of man or none of humanity, none of the human response. And where it's either this either or dichotomy, um, which kind of goes back to that dualism mindset. Or, but Torrance says that all of grace means all of humanity. Mm-hmm. It means in the sense of all of, all of human nature. Uh, and so it's, it takes up um, that fallenness in it and it does complete it and perfect it. Um, and so it, it, it kind of breaks down that, that dualism of, of do I choose God or does God choose me? I mean, ultimately, our choice of God is rooted in God's choice of us and in uh, Christ's choice of the Father on our behalf. Um, but it, it, it is a, it's an event that it doesn't take place over our heads um, or behind our back. It's an event that truly, uh, the event of reconciliation truly takes, takes place um, as we participate in Christ. And right. so participation is a big um, motif of, of Torrance's work as well. And I think some of the narratives that we talked about for salvation or for reconciliation do tend to re- revolve around that transactional degree, mm-hmm. where it's kind of this, this, uh, this thing that just happens, and then you apply it to your life, uh, and all that. But where, where Torrance really stresses that Christ has included you already in his life. Christ right. has already included your response in his response to the Father. He's already included your existence in in this, and and so there's this great story of, I think there's a similar story for Barton, whether or not they're actually true, I, I don't know, but where somebody asks Torrance, Torrance, were you born again, or are you a born again Christian? And and Torrance's response is, I think something similar that Bart says is that I was born again when Christ raised again from the uh, from the virgin tomb, and when he first raised or was born of the virgin womb, um, and so that like. That emphasis of I was born again when Christ was born again. Right. Christ was raised to new life. And that's 
the the uh content of being you know born again and and all of this stuff and and so that that's such a profound motif where you know where we participate in what christ has done and we've already been included in it it's not something that it's something that has happened to you it's not something that you have to then add and apply to your life like like a bomb over a wound or something it's something that christ has actually healed already um in his humanity um mm -hmm. And back to the the true humanity thing, I, I think I just want to mention that um, one of the phrases that Torrance borrows from the early church is Gregory of Nyssa's phrase that the un, unassumed is the unhealed. And so, for Torrance, it's it's that Godward motion is the sense of Christ has to truly capture and grab hold of, and take upon Himself the the fallen and the unhealed condition in order to heal it. And I, that goes back to I guess Athanasius and Irenaeus's phrase of. He became what we are so that we can become what he is. And, and so all these things are connected in, in participation and uh, being included in Christ is, is kind of the central uh, thrust of it. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot, but it's very beautiful. I think. Yeah. Thinking of the gospel. Right. Well, and I think um, I just, I, what fascinates me a lot from the little bit of Torrance I've read thus far. And then of course, what, what you uh, highlight in your work about him is that there's a reciprocity going on of those two of the divine and human natures and the human nature is not neglected. It's interesting that Torrance kind of is doing this theology in a time that's kind of, uh, you know, that in the, in the field of theology, he's doing this type of work on Christology while in the, like the biblical studies fields um there was kind of a gearing up of the second quest of jesus that was really interested in jesus as the historic human so um kind of a side note for our uh listeners if they you know they i, I see kind of um make, makes you appreciate um what goes on in the 20th century but since we've been talking about jesus and his human nature and um seeing how jesus as a human is crucial to understanding fully um you know the reciprocity of those human and divine natures um uh he torrance tries to get away from what he calls a latin heresy not because he literally thinks it's heresy but because he thinks uh uh there's a short-sightedness and maybe the repetitious articulations of it uh and what we mean by this is that the latin heresies basically it pertained to how jesus how in the west um, it is commonly how Jesus is reconciling us to God and the atonement is that has have commonly been articulated. And he, he has, but it's interesting because he takes issue with um, both a forensic, he doesn't reject these from what I understand, but he, he, uh, he takes issue with a forensic conception of Christ's death on the cross and the atoning work. And he takes issue not rejecting an ethical conception uh of it and uh for our listeners of course um in the west the forensic way of putting it kind of leads a substitutionary atonement penal substitutionary atonement uh where jesus dies in our place and that's um it's anselm's a big was a was a big proponent of that and then also in the west we see the ethical conception which is abelard you know, jesus dies on the cross out of his out of his love for humanity, right? And I wanted to share some quotes from Alexandra Radcliffe from her book, The Claim of Humanity in Christ. Um, and I'll put a show note, a citation of it in our show notes, um, because I think uh, it's interesting. I, I myself find my, I'm, I'm kind of a forensic guy. I'm, I'm, I like substitutionary atonement. I, I agree that, uh, you know, people growing up in a in church or in a youth group where they're just constantly hearing a kind of regurgitated, well, you were bad and you were a sinner, but God took care of it. And Jesus died in your place, took your punishment type thing. I, I can see how that put in that way over and over and over again, the words don't really sink in. There's no really life to it when it's, when it's through that mode of cat, you know, instruction. But I think Torrance offers kind of an interesting critique. Uh, Alexander says, um, quote, TF does not deny the forensic element of the atonement in scripture. Uh, he, he is often misrepresented as, re, misrepresented as denying any forensic element in salvation. However, he does contend that the New Testament never refers to the judgment which Christ bore for us as punishment, 
which TF believes indicates that the atonement has a profounder meaning than could be expressed, expressed by, for instance, a doctrine of penal substitution. Paul presents various metaphors in describing salvation, for example, taken from the law court, temple sacrifices, adoption, and the slave market. Therefore, it could be argued that the forensic element of salvation should not be made absolute, but remain a metaphor, expressing the ultimate ontological reality as revealed in the person of Christ. What are your thoughts on that, uh, Steve? How do you, what do you think about, about, I don't know, I know you haven't read the book, but I just thought, I'm going to get to the, yeah, no, that's, too, but that's a good, um, yeah, I'd agree with that. That's a good di- dissection of, of Torrance, I think. Um, yeah, the, the atonement stuff's really interesting in Torrance. I, um, I do, um, I do really like his stuff on the atonement. Um, I think for, as far as penal substitution, I, 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 I mean, personally, I'm on the other side. I, I, I disagree with that doctrine yeah. and I've done a whole video series on it and, and stuff, but for Torrance, I think he captures an element of it. I, in one of the chapters I break down is the threefold atonement where he kind of goes through the Hebraic words um, for atonement, Kipper, Goel, and Padah, which um, have all the, have different facets of the atonement, whereas Kipper's the um, more of the forensic or, or substitutionary element. Um, so Torrance definitely has it. So he'll, he'll accept things like propitiation and exp- expiation uh, in his work. Um, but the the key difference I think for Torrance, as for Bart as well, actually is is that the atonement doesn't act upon God, and so that's mm. the big stress for them. It's not that the the son, uh, the the sacrifice or whatever, is acting upon God to change something in God, mm-hmm. um, but the the propitiation aspect is something that's acting on the human nature on humans, um, where that's that Godward motion that's truly reaching us in the pit of our of our fallen state um and so the forensic element is definitely there for torrance it's not wholesale rejected i think that's a good way of uh, how she put it um mm-hmm. but I, I think for both it's not this sense of of, of uh, the atonement acting upon god um and so that's where i think that both Barton and torrance they, they um have a element of substitutionary atonement um as scripture does of course and so they have that element but it's not it's not central anymore. So I think they decentralize it a little bit, mm-hmm. um, as they said there. So it, it has more facets to it. And I think one of the Torrance's particular most interesting contribution is the more incarnational mm-hmm. element where he stresses that the, the atonement has to be understood in the light of the incarnation. Right. And John, um, John McLeod, uh, McCampbell, or who is it? Uh, John McCampbell. That's it. Uh, has a great book on the atonement that has, was a big influence on Torrance um in that regard and so kind of that incarnational atonement um mm-hmm. is, is a it's a big point for for torrance um but yeah i i like that i think um torrance does a really good job of um having a really nuanced approach to atonement i i really like some of the phrases that he used for where the atonement is more adored than expressed and so ultimately this is something that is a great is the, the very mystery of our faith Sure. And so all these things that we try to do where we find some sort of way to explain it simplistically um, is fundamentally flawed because ultimately the atonement is Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Christ himself is the, the, um, the at, at one minute with us and God. And so um, he is the reconciliation. He is the uh, relationship we have to the father and mm-hmm. in, in our, our participation. And so, um, he recaptures a little bit more of that mystery, putting mystery at the heart of the atonement, um, and then a little bit more of the the nuance to it. Where, like I say, he has those three, uses those three Hebraic words where he goes and, and understands the atonement in those ways, and um, as as um, as a victorious act, as you know. And I think that that's kind of following the motif that Calvin used of as Jesus's uh, priest, prophet, and king um, as well. And so I think there's parallels there. Um, and Bart does the same with his church dogmatics. Mm-hmm. He he organizes volume four along those three uh, lines. And so, yeah, there's a lot there. But I think I think Torrance is particularly helpful for that. I'm someone that that is critical of penal substitution, um, and I think Torrance is a helpful voice of explaining why, but also of explaining how it's not just this. Because I think the the polar opposite is, like you said, the ethical, the moral influence theory of of Abelard and and all this, where where that once you have you get rid of penal substitution you just run to the opposite 
I think Torrance does a good job of critiquing it, but then holding on to a reformulated version of that understanding of atonement because it is a motif in scripture. Um, right. And so, um, yeah, I, I like his stuff on the atonement a lot. Um, I think it's, I think it's extremely helpful. I think uh, his, what he learns from the church fathers, I think comes out a lot. So he borrows a lot from Athanasius for that. Uh, and where he does take it, where on the incarnation, I think is one of the best books on the atonement actually that I think has ever been written. In oh the yeah. Church. It's beautiful. And it has such a atonement theme to it. Cause the, I think in the West, sometimes the, the incarnation isn't, elevated to the degree of where we understand that as a salvific event um where it's just the cross is the thing that saves us but actually it's the life of christ that saves us and so Torrance does a good job of of emphasizing that um as well so the the continuity yeah um it's interesting too uh i like how you said you know the atonement is it is one thing in a sense but it's multifaceted um mm-hmm. two recent just kind of for our listeners if, if there's two there's been two re- i've noticed there's two recent um writings from kind of different people different different christian corners you got um from william lane craig and uh fleming rutledge have both written things on uh fleming rutledge is an episcopal priest um for a listener a lot of them may know who she is but um she's a like us, like Stephen and I does not have a PhD, but she's written this lots of like theology um, it, for, I mean, just for general audience. I mean, it's, it's uh, her book, The Crucifixion, which is a huge book. It's kind of an aid for how preachers should, pastors should preach about the crucifixion, what Christians should understand about the crucifixion and the atonement. And the way she, uh, she puts the atonement, she, she says that throughout the Bible, you have different motifs of it. And, um, these different atonement theories, whether it's the ethical Abelard, that Jesus died for his love. Um, it was an example of love or whether it was an example of substitution, you know, all these things, they, they all, it's, they can all come together. Um, and, and uh, then William Lake Craig uh, wrote a real, more of a systematic work um, where he, he kind of compared, he used the analogy of a, of a, of a gem, I guess, with different sides or an emerald, but at the center, the core for him is substitutionary. So, um, yeah, just interesting. There's been lots, there's lots of good work on it. There's lots of good work on the atonement that isn't trying to argue for one theory over another, but seeing, um, you know, how they're all complementary and they get at, and they get at a crucial part of the truth of what Jesus does holistically in his life and in his death. Um, so, you know, I think that's, yeah. Um, of course he also, uh, I was going to share the quote also, but I'll just of the, uh, I was going to share also um, Alexander Radcliffe's quote on how Torrance critiqued Abelard and the moral influence theory, the ethical theory. Um, we're kind of a little bit out of time, but if you, in uh, which, because I, I love that critique more, <laughs> but that's all right. We don't have to get to it. Uh, you can go get the book. Uh, I think you can get it like for $10 on uh, uh, for ebook edition. I think it's more, it's more of an academic the- theology book. Those books tend to run a little more than, um, uh, you know, uh, the regular theology books. And so, um, but if you're interested, I'll put a show note to that book. Uh, and so Torrance is an interesting theologian. Um, so Stephen, thank you for being on the show. Uh, any additional thoughts or anything on just uh, what we can learn from Torrance or his continued, continued, continued significance? Yeah, um, no, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, I, when I think about Torrance, like I, I've, talked about i think a couple times i i think about his personal and his pastoral implications and the importance of that so i think um he's had a big personal effect on me i think in terms of um how to proclaim the good news how to proclaim the gospel um as we started with that i i think he's a great benefit for that so i feel like the church you know whether or not this is happening for some in the church or not but I, i feel like my experience has been that there was kind of this return back home to just proclaiming the gospel and that that's the center of, of the church. And, and I think um, some of the deviations from that can be, you know, moralizing the gospel or being too overly emphasizing um, don't do this or do this. And that that's the only voice the church has in the world is just this moral kind of gospel place. imperatives, right? Yeah. Which yeah. <laughs> that's never been what we're 
what we're called to be right. and we're called to proclaim the good news of what's happened in Christ. And I feel like that, um, that is something that can be recaptured by Torrance by, I think, um, when we recall what's beautiful about the gospel, when we recall what's, you know, I think theology and worship should be seamlessly intertwined. Um, and I think that Torrance's work does such a great job of being in itself a, a form of worship where it just elevates your spirit and elevates your heart to, to really adore what God has done and how beautiful it is. And so I think for me, that's been such a thing that has me return to Torrance quite often, um, but also just kind of, um, yeah, his theology is, is very worshipful. It's very beautiful in that sense. And, and it reclaims just the goodness of the gospel and, and helps us, I think, to, we, we shouldn't have a message that's just no, 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 or don't do this, you know, and all these things. I think we should have a message that's, that's appealing. That's good news. That's truly just um, exciting and, and actually um, meets people where they are and can lift them out of their shame and their guilt and, and proclaim truly good news of, of great joy. And I think coming back to that is something that Torrance can help the church with a lot. Um, I mm -hmm. think, cause he's helped me, you know, for a lot. So I'd say that, yeah, you know, for, returning to to the basics you know to the not necessarily basics it's everything in the gospel and um so returning to that i think towards Jose does a good job so yeah and i and i think the thing that stuck out to me the most is uh god is not behind the back of mm -hmm. jesus christ he is jesus christ so mm -hmm. awesome um steven thanks for being on and for our listeners if you're interested in checking out more of steven's work including some of his stuff he's written on uh substitutionary atonement you can go to sdmorrison.org, correct? That's the URL for yep. that. Yeah. Check out sdmorrison.org. Uh, get a couple of the plain English series. I think they're very helpful. Um, uh, after this, I'm kind of curious to read the the Bart one. I know it's, um, I've read like all the McCormick and the Hunsinger and all that stuff, but yeah. just, I sometimes just like concise, well put, you know, things. On. And so, you know, I, I might pick that one up too after the Torrance one, but thank you. And he's really introduced Torrance to me because I, again, did not really read much of him before. So thanks, Stephen. God bless you um, and your continued work and you really your continued ministry because you are ministering through this. So yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's fun. All right, Stephen. Take care. And yep. we'd love to have you on again in the future. Sounds good. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Bye. Hi, and thank you for listening. This is Reverend Andrew Christensen again. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to check out our previous episodes of Doth Protest Too Much. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or another streaming service that lets you rate and review our show, please do so. Five stars, one star, however you honestly feel, we can take it and would love and appreciate your feedback. Also, for any further questions or suggestions for our show, please email me at dothprotesttoomuchpodcast at gmail.com. God bless your day.